John 4, verses 1 to 26. Now Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And the second reading is from Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 12 to chapter 2 to 17. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. 
Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding my wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can a king's successor do than has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain from being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Here ends the readings. Evening. Please do keep Ecclesiastes open before we begin. Uh, my name's Simon, and we'll need to pray, ask for God's help. So let's begin in prayer now. Father in heaven, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet, it's a light to our path. Uh, it's good, it's precious. Uh, so, Father, please open our eyes this evening to see wonderful things from your law. Please, Father, uh, speak to us tonight. Uh, Please show us what we need to hear. Amen. If you could give yourself to something to make life feel worthwhile, what would it be? What is kind of one thing you could have to make life feel, yeah, that's good. That's worth something. What is it when you're in your old age, you look back on this time here in London now and you think to yourself, those were good years. Those were worthwhile. I'm glad about those years. What would it be for you? Now, of course, we're here in church. 
The answer's probably Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I guess we, we know that. Uh, we know that. But it's one thing to kind of either say that in your head or be here in this room and think that. But it can be another thing to feel that. It's one thing to know in our minds, another to feel it, to feel that Jesus is that living water that satisfies, that quenches the thirst for meaning. What is it that would make life feel full and worthwhile? I don't know, maybe having achieved something good, something good, ethical, something which people look back on and think, yeah, that was something useful, something people have a quiet respect for. Or maybe the opposite, maybe kind of having just squeezed every last drop out of life, uh, full of uh, friends, family, having done that. I don't know what it is for you, what springs to mind. But if God is not at the center, it's meaningless. (laughs) It's empty. It's useless, meaningless. (laughs) Uh, It's quite depressing, isn't it? Yeah. But actually... That is what the purpose of this book is, Ecclesiastes. It's here to show us that life without God at the center of the picture is meaningless. It just doesn't last. It's just like vapor. So look at chapter 1, verse 3, please. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? So basically, this is uh, the question this book is answering. He's asking, what do you get out of life? The end of the day, when all's said and done, all those cliches, what do you get out of life? And this book is here to show us that actually lots of these things that we hold dear, that we can build a life on, if that's consciously or subconsciously, actually death shatters it. Death's just like a massive hammer through glass to it. Makes it just meaningless. Empty. Let me have a look at chapter 1, verse 2. This is the writer's conclusion about the matter. Verse 2, he says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So meaningless, the word just means vapor or mist. Uh, It's like a puff of smoke. It's like that um, kind of links being sprayed, the spray that comes out. Uh, There's nothing lasting about it. It's just here one minute, gone the next. There's no permanence to it. You can't keep it, it's gone. Because what the teacher who writes this book is doing is taking us on a journey with him to consider life. And to consider life without God in the centre of the picture. So God's not entirely absent in Ecclesiastes. In this bit we're reading tonight, he's just not there in the centre. He's not the heartbeat. So basically the point is just to make us pause a second in life and think, hang on, what is the point of all this? (laughs) What I'm doing here... What good is it? So uh, later on in chapter 12, the the narrator will say Ecclesiastes is like uh, these words like goads. So basically like a massive pointy stick you get poked with and just feels really uncomfortable. Okay, that's what listening to Ecclesiastes is like, being poked with a pointy stick. So we're supposed to feel uncomfortable reading this tonight. And I'm praying actually the Holy Spirit will make us feel uncomfortable where we need to tonight. That he will wake us up from perhaps just meandering aimlessly through life or going back to bad uh, old ways and for us to see that actually Jesus Christ is the one who gives living water from which all thirst is perfectly quenched. But actually in order to see that we need a bit of poking with Ecclesiastes, okay? So that's where we're going tonight. 
So if you're sitting comfortably, we'll begin. Uh, Verse 12, please. Chapter 1 and verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So we switch now to the first person from more general in the first half of the chapter. So what we have at this point in Ecclesiastes is Solomon, uh, the king of Jerusalem, uh, from personal experience, saying how he came to explore uh, what was good in life, what the point of it all was. So it's a personal example. And so first up for him on his quest was knowledge. So verse 13, I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that's done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God's laid on mankind. And then verse 16, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. So his aim was to study hard in life, to find out about the universe, the world, what makes people tick, what's going on in the world. He just wanted to know stuff. So he engaged with the philosophers. He read all the big names. You know, in his, if he was here today, he would have read Nietzsche, Aristotle, Karl Marx. He looked into other worldviews. He explored them. He studied nature, literature, science. He studied lots of things. And he was known as being the brightest guy around. He was the go-to a guy, on, uh, go-to scholar of his day. Obviously, there are many uh, today with desire for knowledge. It seems to the world that perhaps scientists, uh, guys like Stephen Hawking, are uh, the ones that really know their stuff. And I guess someone like Stephen Hawking looks at uh, life in the universe uh, without God in the picture. Actually, God's not even a side of the picture. He's an atheist, so God's not in the picture for him. And we live in a country with, obviously, a ridiculous amount of universities when you think about it. Uh, education has never been valued higher than it is now. And we know loads of stuff. We live in an age where if you've got a question, I don't know, what's the sun made of? Google it. Or um, I'd like to learn how to fly. I'm probably an app for that. Um, we, we live in an age where knowledge is readily available. There's so much of it around. And it's good. You know, compared to people 100 years ago, oh, they wouldn't have a clue about those answers a couple of hundred years ago. They had some pretty backwards opinions, it looks like now, doesn't it? Naive philosophies about beginning of the universe. Uh, hadn't even dreamed of the Big Bang. When they saw a comet in the sky, they thought it was a ghost. So that's what the teacher did, basically, first off. He just studied loads. And this was his conclusion in verse 14. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. Oh. Meaningless, just like trying to chase the wind down. You can't do it. Why? Well, look at verse 17. So I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, also madness and folly, but learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Okay, so this was his conclusion. Knowledge brings grief. Wisdom brought sorrow. So Stephen Hawking, he is an atheist, um, his knowledge has actually led him to agree with Ecclesiastes. He agrees with Solomon's point here. Uh, a quote from him, he said before, uh, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among 100 billion galaxies. Or in other words, we're all just coincidences of DNA, um, there's no meaning or purpose together, and we're kind of just hurtling around space on this mass- massive rock. That's basically what his knowledge, without God in the picture, has led him to say. So he was asked in 2010, well, how does this knowledge of yours uh, affect your life? You know, what difference does it make to like, your family life? And he replied, 
Physics may explain the mysteries of life, but it's cold and unemotional. So I try not to let it affect my family life. So he agrees with Ecclesiastes. Because he's consistent in his knowledge, he's basically like, it's really depressing. If I'm consistent in this knowledge, it just means that the love I feel for someone, uh, it's just kind of uh, a coincidence of atoms flying around, an eccentricity of I don't know, motor neurons in the brain. Now, when he tastes something or enjoys something, that's not really real, it's just, it's just chemicals. There's no purpose to family life. Oh, you can try and enjoy it and make the most of it, but really, you think about it, there's no purpose to it. So knowledge brings grief if God's not in the picture. And that's what Stephen Hawking admits. And also when you think about it, the, the newspaper proves it. So the easy way to uh, read the newspaper is to do what I can often do is you flick straight to the sports page and have a read of that. Uh, then you kind of flick through the weekend supplements, look at the nice pictures, throw away the confusing money section. Uh, straight to the travel section, you've got those nice pictures of the holidays. And then when it comes to the, uh, the actual newspaper and the actual news, the important stuff, uh, you kind of you know, glance headlines and then maybe flick through for pictures of the royal family. And then you're kind of done. You're kind of done. That's the easy thing to do. Because if you actually read what's going on in newspapers globally, and if you read it and engage your emotions in it, it's going to bring you grief. It's a sad experience. It means that every day you read of, oh, another bombing in the Middle East. When I pick up the paper, do I want to know what ISIS did yesterday? Do I want to know that? More children suffering. Or, I don't know, more celebrity scan scandal, another gagging order. Oh, it's all just a... Uh, depressing. If you engage your emotions with what's uh, going on in this world, it's painful because this world is broken, because it's fallen, it's tainted by sin. So knowledge is meaningless. Knowledge without God is meaningless, so don't base your life on that. That's what the teacher says. Okay, well that was depressing again, wasn't it? What next? Uh, Next up, the teacher says, well... Let's just go down the pub and get some beers in, eh? Drinks on me, what do you say? That is basically what he says. Have a look. Verse 1 of chapter 2. So I said to myself, come now. I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Okay, so his aim was to see if pleasure, kind of hedonism, uh, would do the job for him. But don't get your hopes up because he says straight away, no, it was meaningless, it didn't. Verse 2, he said, Laughter, I said, is madness. What does pleasure accomplish? So two types of word here. The first is laughter. Um, so the Hebrew word basically means kind of banter. It's kind of light-hearted, uh, laddie fun. So that's the first kind of uh, fun he tried, basically like the lab brooks life, like, well, hey, let's just have some fun, uh, that kind of thing. The second word is there for pleasure. And that's more highbrow. That's more kind of like... Um, uh, the theatre in Champagne, that kind of thing. It's kind of like uh, appreciation of the arts, uh, the, the, the fine enjoyments of life. It's kind of like respectable pleasure. So he tries out both. Basically, he goes on a laddie night out in Vegas, wakes up with a tattoo sleeve and a tiger in the bathroom. <laughs> and then he sees that doesn't work, so he goes off to uh, Milan in his kind of James Bond black tie and goes to the opera. It's all very nice. He tries both. And then verse 3 He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. 
So he wanted to see what was good. If knowledge didn't cut it for him, it was depressing. He wanted to see, did pleasure do it? And his conclusion, verse 1, meaningless. Because verse 2, well, laughter's madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? He basically says, what does that big night out actually accomplish? And how long was it until I just got a bit bored of it? There's an article actually this week in The Guardian agreeing with just this again. Um, so it's uh, reporting that hundreds of nightclubs have closed in the last few years. And the number of uh, nightclubs being opened has really plummeted, nosedived. Um, because apparently, according to the article, millennials have just got bored <laughs> of clubbing. Apparently, according to them, 70% of millennials prefer a night in to a night out. And I felt a bit better about myself then. <laughs> But basically, so that's nothing new. Solomon points it out 3,000 years ago. It's just, what does it accomplish? After a while, it just gets boring. But on the other hand, what about that traveling the world, having the good experiences, the nice pleasures in life, the best money can buy with the best people? But he just says, like, what does it accomplish? What's the point? When you die, you might know about the arts. You might get buried in your black tie. You can't take it with you. All those, uh, I don't know, nice pictures on Facebook and build the ultimate uh, experiences of pictures on there. Sooner or later we die and some, I don't know, intern on Facebook is just going to delete it. It's like vapor. And actually, if you think think about it, an endless kind of treadmill of escapism is actually an admission that it's meaningless. If you've got to live for that uh, next holiday, you've got to live for the Friday night out, that is depressing, isn't it? If you're only living for the, for the weekend, that's meaningless, it's empty. And isn't it such an easy one just to see of how that's true today? I mean, um, how many rock stars are there who've experienced nights out that people can only dream of and then wash out a few years later and just write in their autobiographies? Man, That's terrible. Don't do that. What did it accomplish? Okay, so knowledge, no. Uh, Pleasure, kind of without God, no. What about achievements then? That's his third one. So have a look at verse four. He says, I undertook great projects. Okay, so he got himself busy, head down, and he got productive. Okay, and some pretty impressive stuff he did actually. He says, verse 4, I built houses for myself and planted vineyards, made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, and made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. So he basically got himself this huge property portfolio. He planted a vineyard, bottled his own champagne, two types. Uh, He made gardens and parks. People from all over the world could walk through and go, wow, look at those. He had a reservoir, verse 6, so it's like technology of the day. He's right up there. It's cutting edge. And his little world flourished. He basically built himself his own little garden of Eden. It's all there for him. Houses, drink, fruit, food, all the fruit he wants. His own little world. And he did it all himself. So he had an abundance of possessions and property, but also wealth and business power. So if you see verse 7 there, I brought male and female slaves, had other slaves, also born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So basically he had tons of employees who would do what he wanted. Presumably he was a good boss. And he had more herds than anyone else. So that's the equivalent of having, I don't know, the most stocks and shares in all of London. So he's wealthy. 
Verse 8, he amassed silver and gold for myself, and the treasure of kings and provinces. So loads of money, never worried about it, bank account through the roof. Uh, Verse 8 again, uh, I acquired male and female singers. So kind of private pop band, you know, just got Coldplay and Jay-Z out on the patio, you know, full time, playing yellow on a loop, that kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, Verse 8 again in the end, and he got himself a harem as well. Oh, the delights of a man's heart. So a gang of women do whatever he wants. People look at him in envy. Oh, this guy's at all. He had all he wanted sexually, financially, security, fun, prestige, achievement. Verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. This was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. That's what he learned from all this. Empty. Meaningless. You see, trying to achieve something can occupy you. But then when you've got to the top of it, now what? What's the point? Uh, so Michael Jordan, a kind of famous basketball player, uh, if you've seen Space Jam, he's the guy in that. Uh, but basically in his day in the 90s and kind of early noughties, he's like the David Beckham of the basketball world. Uh, he was the absolute champ. And in an interview, uh, 2013, ahead of his 50th birthday, uh, he said to an interviewer, I would give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. So we asked him, you know, how do you replace this, having you know, been such a big deal in it, you achieved so much? He said, I can't. I'm just trying to learn to live with it. And so Michael Jordan's accomplished what most men can only dream of. Certainly what everyone in his field would die to get. He's achieved it. But despite that, all he wants to do now is go back to the bottom and do it all over again. Because once you've been to the top, well, what do you do now? How do I fill this hole in my life? You can't fill that infinite hole with finite stuff. Uh, or different opinion, uh, Russell Brand, the uh, English kind of actor, comedian, uh, atheist, said famously in an interview with Jeremy Paxman, a quote, he said, I myself was seduced by fame growing up in Essex. And I thought, yeah, I want to be famous. And now that I am famous, what does it mean? Ashes in my mouth. He says, we should try to examine the things that we're using to make us happy. This pursuit of celebrity, wealth, status, consumption of products, ignorance of uh, economic matters, and try to aspire to something more truthful and honest. Oh man, Russell Brand's so close, isn't he? But he just misses the point. He's close. He sees it's meaningless. But he doesn't see the answer. And the trouble is, with most of us, is basically none of us here are going to be the next Richard Branson. Okay? We're not going to basically get to the top or get that thing which we think will satisfy meaning. We haven't got to the top of that hill. So we think it might still be up there, but it won't. (laughs) That's Solomon's point here. It won't. That question at the beginning, uh, what is it that would make you feel, oh yeah, that was worthwhile? If there's anything other than God, no, it won't do it. Actually, we can live like meaning is just out of reach. If only I could have, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be really fulfilled. That's all I need, we tell ourselves. So, uh, I don't know, some of us may have an ambition the size of Donald Trump. Uh, others probably don't. Most of us don't, do we? 
I'm pretty modest with our ambitions we tell ourselves up. I can tell myself, you know, all I'd like would be a little place, quiet place in the country with my family, and be fine. But I wouldn't. <laughs> I get it, and I want more. That's what Solomon's saying here. It's a lie. And of course, um, advertising plays on this. Uh, advertising tell, tells us if we had the romance in that perfume advert, oh, if we had that Instagrammed holiday, mm. if we had those beautiful kids, if we had that property portfolio, oh, then we would feel like it was worthwhile. But it wouldn't. <laughs> it wouldn't. That's the point. It wouldn't. A time and again, there are people who have got to the top of whatever it was and have said again and again, no, it doesn't do it. Famously, a millionaire, an 18th century millionaire, 19th century millionaire, a John Rockefeller, was asked how much money do you need to be happy. The millionaire said, just a few dollars more. Look at someone like Donald Trump. You think, what more does a man need? He has a model a wife. He has riches business success. He's a media a personality. Everyone around the world is talking with, uh, about him. He still wants more, wants to be president. We will always just want more. And basically, here's Solomon just saying, guys, I did that. I was the top dog at everything. And it was meaningless. It was empty. Achievements, pleasure, knowledge, it's just meaningless when you're trying to be satisfied. It won't do it. There's no point. Why? Because of death. So verse 12, please have a look with me. Verse 12, I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom, also madness and folly. But what more can the king's successor do than already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, well, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it's meaningless, chasing after the wind. He says, it doesn't matter if you're the cleverest clog in the country or an absolute idiot. Both die. And so verse 16, what's the point? Death puts an end to all this. All this bubble of a life you can occupy yourself with. Death just bursts it. And Ecclesiastes tells us we will then be judged by God. So if you have the quote up from chapter 12, this is the conclusion of the matter. Uh, Now all's been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Hebrews 9 in the New Testament says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So this is the goad, the stick that we need to hear. Death is real. And then there's judgment for every deed All of us one day will stand before the judge. He will judge in holiness, in perfection. All people, all time, all sin needs to be punished. Sin must be separated from God forever. 
judgment is real. And actually that puts a lot of this in perspective, doesn't it? I mean, who cares if you got a first or a third? Who cares if you made a million or lived on the minimum wage when you face the judge? This is a good thing to fear. So he says, fear God. This is what it means to fear God, to so grieve your sin that you look to Jesus Christ to take that judgment for you. Look to Christ. So in light of the meaningless of everything that death brings, fear God and look to Jesus Christ to forgive you. And so as we close, I want to show us uh, this woman who met Jesus. We had it read in the beginning in John chapter 4. This woman had discovered just how meaningless a life could be. as She'd been married and separated five times and now she's sleeping with another man. She's still looking and, and searching for the meaning. She's gone to the well to get water. Physically, she's thirsty. Ah, but spiritually, she thirsts for meaning, for that kind of emptiness to be filled. And Jesus, uh, pointing to the well, said to her, uh, next one please, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So the drink of water, ah, she'll always need another. But the deep satisfaction that she's looking for, Jesus says, I give you that. He will perfectly quench that desire. So any here today who aren't yet Christians, this is what Jesus offers. It's wonderful. And those of us who are, I guess we can probably think of, uh, think of times in our life when this has really been true. We've had a desire or something which Jesus has just completely quenched. He's sanctified it in a good way. He's re-centered a desire fully around him. Oh, it's good. It's good to kind of think of areas like that in our lives. But of course, sometimes in life, it really doesn't feel like that, does it? In the daily grind. It doesn't feel like I'm kind of quenched in my desire perfectly. Why? I think it's because sometimes I'm just too, um, I'm too much living like God is in the background of the picture. I'm too much invested in the pleasures of this world. And so we've got to go back to the source of living water to Jesus and drink from him. So my craving for a a comfier lifestyle, I'm not going to get that from another holiday uh, from the place in the country. I'll get it from him who gives me rest. And when my soul is satisfied in him and I'll find it in the heaven he'll bring me to Jesus Christ and so of course now as we think to life here on earth now uh, later on chapter 8 verse 15 will tell us Solomon commends the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better under the sun to eat drink and be glad so the teacher says yeah there is actually great joy in godly fear a real enjoyment in life that's better than anything else in a life that's content. So Ecclesiastes in today's sermon is certainly not a call to kind of uh, reject all pleasure, reject all knowledge, and kind of just be uh, miserable lots, uh, unproductive, unambitious. But instead, Ecclesiastes teaching us to enjoy life in godly fear. To enjoy life in godly fear. That means in a context where you know uh, God is the one who gives the gifts, but they don't always last. And I think this is just wonderfully liberating for Christians living in London. 
So as we close, just go back over those areas addressed in Ecclesiastes. You think knowledge. With knowledge, it means you don't have to try and know it all. I don't have to spend all exam term in the library 24-7 burning midnight oil. I can be content learning in a way that brings God glory. I can be content coming to church or SKG, knowing I'm not missing out on work. When we come to reading the newspaper, we don't have to read uh, the terrible things going on in kind of hopeless grief on the one hand, or on the other, are just completely disengaged from it all. We don't have to do that. We can be happy that there is a God who's sovereign, who will bring every deed to judgment, including actually what's written in the paper. So it means we can be content not knowing the answer to what's going on, because there is a God. Or pleasure. Pleasure. With Jesus, it has a um, water of life. It means we don't have to escape into it. We don't have to live for that next holiday, a Friday night, because we know that there is a God who sees and who rewards. We might have had the worst week ever, just the most difficult work things going on. But we don't need to find satisfaction in escaping into a box set or that night out. We don't need to, because God is there. So it means as a Christian, I can have that tricky week at work. I can go to the pub on a Friday evening, knowing actually that week wasn't a waste of time. It wasn't. Because God exists, he's there, he sees it, and he will reward. So I don't have to escape into, I don't know, drink and banter, but I can enjoy instead. I can enjoy laughter and friendship and drink, knowing it's given by God and a gift from him. I can go home, enjoy my favorite box set, watching it, knowing God saw my week, and he will reward. And think about it, that gives us such a better joy. Well, lastly, achievement. Achievement, I don't have to chase it. I don't need to prove myself. I don't need it. Because my worth and my identity are not tied up in it. Actually, I'm in Christ. (laughs) I'm co-heirs with him. Does it get better than that? It means I can instead. I can be ambitious after the glory of God. I can be ambitious in my workplace, my business. I want to see it grow. I'd love to get promotion. Because I'd love to honor God in this workplace. I'd love to give him glory. I'd love to provide my family. I love to earn more so I can give more money away. It means I can be content in the position God has put me in, even if I'm at you know, the very lowest, the pecking order of whatever it is. I can know, oh, there's a God who's sovereign and in control. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. That's not a meaningless life. With Jesus, it's a life full of quenching meaning. So as we close, please have a look at Chapter 2, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes. Here's his conclusion. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Ah, the most knowledgeable guy around, at the most pleasure, at achievements. But death, judgment, that makes it all meaningless. It doesn't last. So fear God. Look to Christ, and he is the water that springs up to eternal life. In him, oh, we have so much to be thankful for. Not only are we saved, we have these lives full of meaning that lasts. We can look back in our old age, living for him in London, and think, yeah, man, that was really worth it. Wouldn't want to do anything different. That is enjoying life in a godly fear. Should we close in prayer? Father, we 
we thank you for this uncomfortable reminder. Father, these truths of, of death and judgment, making so much of things just meaningless. But we thank you for Jesus Christ and his death for us. Father, we thank you for how good life with him is, how good the life he brings is. I thank you so much that uh, life isn't meaningless, Lord. It's full of it. Teach us, please, more and more, Lord, to keep on drinking from that water, uh, to keep Jesus in the center of the picture, Lord. Teach us more and more to live that, our lives in a godly fear. For the glory of your name, Father, please. Amen.